Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, March 4th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. This week's cover story, Higher Input Costs and Tightening Exports Facing Farmers in 2022 by Michael Crum. Following a year where the ag industry outperformed expectations with higher production and commodity prices, there is quiet optimism heading into the 2022 season as projections for export sales are lowered and input costs skyrocket. We were expecting to see some higher prices on our inputs, but we weren't expecting to see 300% increases. So the optimism for 2022 isn't real good right now, said Lance Lillibridge, a Benton County farmer. We don't know what kind of crop we're going to have, and to have these kinds of expenses on our inputs, it's pretty depressing. To put that kind of money into a crop that we don't know if you're going to get a dime out of it, it's pretty depressing, he said. Lillibrand, Lillibridge plans to plant 100% corn this year and maintain his cow-calf operation. Getting punched in the gut with these crop input prices kind of makes a guy wonder what he should be doing, said Lillibridge who is also the president of the Iowa Corn Growers Association Board of Directors. Chad Hart, an agriculture, agricultural economist at Iowa State University, said a rebound in commodity prices in late 2020 carried over into 2021 and so far into early 2022. 2021 was a great year for agriculture financially, and as we've entered 2022, we still sit in a very strong position, but we are starting to see the negative side of having higher prices, he said. High prices do start to erode demand, so there are some issues as we look forward in demand as higher prices start to wear down what has been really good demand. Hart said the futures market shows strong prices that hold up for the first half of the year, with prices weakening in the second half of 2022. That is because strong planting numbers are expected this spring, which could mean an increase in supplies this fall, driving prices down. Corn was trading on the Chicago Board of Trade in the $6.40 a bushel range at the time of publication. According to a report from Hart, that price could drop to the $5.60 range by the end of 2022. Soybeans were trading at around $16 a bushel and could fall to the $13.80 range by the end of the year. Higher prices for crops often result in farmers wanting to expand production. So we've watched our input costs rise dramatically as farmers have chased after those needed supplies in order to produce the next crop or the next round of lime livestock, Hart said. So 2022 right now still looks profitable, but not quite as profitable as 2020 was. The deeper we look into the year, the tighter that squeeze becomes in terms of profit margins, he said. Higher prices also tend to erode demand, especially on exports, Hart said. There are concerns as we look toward next fall and winter's export outlook that it will be weaker than what we experienced this past year, because of those higher prices eroding demand internationally, he said. 
After strong growth in export markets in 2021, there are signs those markets will weaken in 2022, Hart said. We know they're going to slide. It's just a question of how much. The cuts we're starting to see already are fairly deep as we look at the soybean industry or pork industry. They're lighter if you look at corn, and we're actually seeing some growth if you look at the beef market, he said. According to Hart's report, projected soybean exports are lagging behind 2020 levels, but remain on pace for the five-year average. Soybean exports in mid-February were at about 1.6 billion bushels, down from around 2.2 billion bushels last year. Exports to China are forecast to be down about 28%, while exports to Mexico, Europe, and Japan remain stable. Overall, soybean exports are forecast to be down nearly 23% this year. Corn exports in mid-February trailed last year at about 1.8 billion bushels, but remained above the five-year average. Corn exports for the same period in 2021 totaled about 2.2 billion bushels, with the five-year average at 1.5 billion bushels. Exports of corn to China were down significantly at nearly 30% below year-ago levels, while exports to Japan were down nearly 26%. Exports to Canada and Mexico were both up 573% and 17% respectively, Hart's report showed. Overall, corn exports are trending down around 19.6%. Pork exports were at about 400,000 metric tons in mid-February, trailing each of the last two years and the five-year average. Export sales of pork to China are forecast to be down 71% in 2022. Exports to Mexico are also expected to drop by more than 18%, while export sales to Japan and Canada are forecast to increase more than 55% and 35% respectively. Overall, pork exports are forecast to be down more than 30% this year. Supply chain issues, which are forecast to continue deep into 2022, affect agriculture more on the input side than the output side of their operations, Hart said. Farmers are finding it challenging to get fertilizer in or agricultural chemicals that we bring in from the other areas of the world, he said. That's where we're facing supply chain problems. When it comes to exporting our corn, our soybeans, our pork, our beef, we find that relatively easy to do. We're having less of a supply chain issue with moving our products out to the rest of the world than pulling in, he said. Pat McGonigal, president of the Iowa Pork Producers Association, said a big issue in 2021 that he anticipates continuing into 2022 is talent and labor. It goes all the way from truck drivers, feed mill workers, vet clinic technicians, and the people in processing plants and farms, he said. McGonigal said pork producers have, quote, reasonable optimism heading into 2022. Market prices are remaining high, but costs of feed are higher too because of higher corn and bean prices. The margins will be decent, we believe, for 2022, and I don't see a big growth in production in 2022, McGonigal said. 
Part of that is the ongoing economic effects of the first year of the pandemic and the August 2020 derecho. And part is the ongoing labor shortage, he said. Pork exports look, quote, pretty good for us, McGonigal said. Over the last five years, we will export about 25% of our production, and we only see that continuing to grow incrementally, he said. Other countries are now opening up a little bit, so that adds to our demand on the export side. McGonigal said he sees continued export growth in Mexico, South Korea, Japan, and Latin America. China is a question mark in 2022, he said. They were a decent buyer for us in 2021, but in the later part of 2021 and first part of 2022, they have not been a significant player in export purchases. Another concern for producers is African swine fever, which limits exports, McGonigal said. One of the things we're continuing to work on is our preparation in the event of an African swine fever outbreak, McGonigal said. That's a challenge of the unknown. We hope we never get it, but if we do, that's kind of a challenge. Grant Kimberly, Senior Director of Market Development for the Iowa Soybean Association, said that drier conditions in South America again this year could help boost demand for U.S. crops in 2022, but that the dramatic rises in input prices and inflation, combined with supply issues, are concerning producers as they ready themselves for the 2022 season. We're already seeing a dramatic increase in our fertilizer costs and other input costs, he said. And then you have supply chain disruptions, whether it's shortages of herbicides or other products, parts for machinery. So that kind of throws a little caution sign for a lot of growers going into this next season. Kimberly said dry conditions in South America have helped support U.S. commodity prices. But we have to have these higher commodity prices now because unfortunately our expenses have risen, he said. Overall, prices are hanging in there, and that's a positive. And right now, we have to make sure we have good enough weather that we have good yields this year as well, he said. Kimberly said most producers were lucky that just enough rain fell at the right times last year, resulting in better yields than were initially forecast. That doesn't always happen that way. And he, we used most of that subsoil moisture we had going into last season so the tank is kind of empty going into this year, and we're a little more concerned we may not have as much margin for error when it comes to weather conditions this growing season, he said. Kimberly also talked about the challenge of African swine fever in China and parts of Asia, which he said is slowing down growth in the hog herd around the world. And that slows down overall feed demand a little, he said. There's a lot of headwinds out there. Another thing to watch is the, quote, decarbonization of the energy markets, Kimberly said. You're going to see biofuels play a greater role in the decarbonization of the energy economy quicker because it's more readily available and the technology is able to be done with minimal infrastructure changes, he said. We're going to see growth in things like renewable diesel, biodiesel. I think ethanol will play a role, especially with these carbon pipelines you see being talked about, he said. That will create stronger demand for soybean oil, corn oil, canola oil, and animal fats, he said. 
That's a new dynamic that is interesting to watch, Kimberly said. For Lillibridge, the Benton County farmer, 2022 could all come down to those higher input costs. It's dramatically changing livelihoods, he said. On our farm, we're going to have about a $100,000 increase in input prices this year. That's not good for us. In the feature story, USDA Rural Development seeks to beef up food supply chain capacity. Lender sees great potential. Processor says speedy decisions needed. By Joe Gardiaz. When Lincoln Savings Bank decided it wanted to ramp up its USDA Rural Loans program, the bank recruited Randy Frescon, who retired after a 30-year career with the U.S. Department of Agriculture as Iowa's Business and Cooperative Program Director. My wife says that I flunked retirement twice, quipped Frescon, 66, who after retiring from the USDA went to work for another bank and then retired again before taking his current position at Lincoln Savings Des Moines branch. Now working in the private sector as Lincoln Savings Senior USDA Coordinator, Frescone says the new Food Supply Chain Loan Guarantee Program the agency launched last year has the potential to have the most significant positive economic impact in decades for small meat producers. The USDA announced the program on December 9th providing $100 million in funding for loan guarantees through the American Rescue Plan. The pandemic exposed vulnerabilities and created extreme disruptions in America's food supply chain, U.S. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack said in announcing the program. The reduction in meat processing capacity is just one example of the supply chain bottlenecks that affect small and mid-sized farmers, he said. Unprecedented production shortages from the closure of large meat processing operations in 2020 due to worker outbreaks of COVID-19 led to empty meat cases at grocery stores across the country. The new loan guarantee program seeks to spur new private investments in food aggregation, processing, manufacturing, storage, transportation, wholesaling, and distribution in short, along the entire food supply chain. We know that the beef processing industry is pretty consolidated by big companies, Frescone said. So what we're looking at is, how can we get increased capacity? How can we get a more reliable supply chain? Eligible uses for the loan guarantee program can include business conversion, enlargement, repair, modernization, or development activities, such as the purchase and development of land, buildings, and associated infrastructure for commercial or industrial properties, the purchase and installation of machinery and equipment, supplies, or inventory, debt refinancing when such refinancing improves cash flow and creates jobs, and business and industrial acquisitions when the loan will maintain business operations and create or save jobs. The program offers more favorable terms for potential borrowers, including an increased borrowing limit of $40 million per project as compared with the USDA's usual $25 million limit, and waives USDA loan origination fees. 
It's available to urban-based companies as well as rural businesses. Quote, so if you have a cold storage business around Des Moines or Cedar Rapids, for instance, they would be eligible, Frescon said. Frescon said the loan guarantees will enable lenders to offer longer repayment periods and thus smaller monthly payments, which will aid those small businesses in stretching their cash flow, he said. Right now, we're seeing interest from organizations like growers groups that have been working towards opening a processing plant, Frescon said. We're also, also getting a lot of activity bubbling up now from the local meat lockers. So I think we're going to see some of the larger projects, but we're also reaching out and encouraging the smaller ones, he said. Dan Julin, co-owner of Arcadia Meats in Carroll County, said he hopes the program can help provide timely financing for a planned expansion of the family-owned business, which has been in operation for 40 years. Historically, quote, our industry has had a lot of trouble getting loans, he said. So it could be a very positive aspect if it's incorporated correctly. He and other small meat producers in Iowa have been frustrated by delays in receiving approvals for U.S. Small Business Administration loans. He's been waiting for the past eight months on an SBA refinancing application. If USDA takes six, eight, 12 months, it puts us that much farther behind, Julin said. I'm hoping USDA Rural Development will be able to move forward quickly. When you're waiting on a decision, you just hope you can get materials and a contractor to build it because the, they often can't wait, he said. Teresa Greenfield, USDA Rural Development State Director for Iowa, said the agency is prepared to handle the potential demand for the new program. We are fully staffed here and ready to work with processors, lenders, and communities. It's what we do, she said. Last year, we invested about $700 million in Iowa. That's a pretty high amount, and we did it all during COVID. And so I think our teams are ready to go, both here locally and nationally, to implement the program, she said. Greenfield said project proposals she has heard of, heard of include mobile meat processing plants to serve rural communities. There are just a lot of creative ways to do it, she said. We can finance equipment in a mid-sized facility to increase their production capacity for them to add new product lines or packaging. As part of the effort, USDA Rural Development recently launched its usda.gov forward slash meat website, which offers comprehensive training for lenders and detailed information for processors. My advice, Greenfield said, if you're interested in extending the supply chain, whether it's through the processing or manufacturing or storage and distributing, distributing the food, reach out to your lender or reach out to us here at USDA Rural Development, Greenfield said. And together, we will help you go through the process, how to prepare an eligible application, and hopefully grow our capacity right here in Iowa. In a sidebar to this story, Dave Swenson, ISU, issues should have been addressed 30 years ago. Dave Swenson, a longtime Iowa State University economics professor, believes the Biden administration's current effort to broaden the meat supply chain 
is a story of, quote, too little, too late, end quote. I do not think that the policies and funding offered thus far by the president will seriously address the incredible market power that large processors possess, Swenson said in an email. This all should have been interfered with back in the late 1980s when I worked at the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship, and we were hollering about it then, he said. Once horizontal integration proved to be so desirable, first in poultry and then in hogs, Folks essentially turned a blind eye, Swenson wrote. It is my opinion that the entire sector of poultry, pork, and meat processing needs to be investigated thoroughly. And if laws need to be written or amended to break up their market power, then that needs to be done. In response to Swenson's position, Teresa Greenfield, USDA Rural Development Director for Iowa, acknowledged the, quote, enormous consolidation within the meat processing industry. Greenfield said, The big four meat processors control about 80% of the market, and we now have a president who not only recognizes that, but is investing resources and efforts to address these food system challenges that have dated back decades. Now is the time for these investments, for midsize and more local processors, to level that playing field, she said. A 2011 study conducted by Swenson examined the potential economic impact that increasing the capacity of smaller meat, poultry, and dairy producers could have on the state's economy. The study found that 56% of Iowa's meat processing establishments had fewer than 10 paid employees in 2008. The study concluded that, quote, the maintenance of small processor viability has a discernible job impact in areas of the state that are not dominated by Iowa's major processors, end quote. However, the study cautioned that because the state, quote, thoroughly meets its residential demands for meat, poultry, and dairy products via in-state production and processing, end quote, regional gains in new productivity in one region could occur at the expense of another region of the state. An update that Swenson conducted on the study in 2018 found that a $1 million increase in output by small meat processors would generate more than twice the total wages and nearly three times the number of jobs per processor, 11.2 jobs per location, versus an average increase of four jobs for a large meat processor to add that much additional output. The Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship at that time was considering a proposal to grant exemptions for certain Iowa meat processors from federal inspections so that they could sell to out-of-state buyers. In May 2020, the USDA approved Iowa's entry into the Cooperative Interstate Shipment Program, which allows small state-inspected meat lockers to apply to sell their products in other states. Small producers got a further boost in June 2021 when Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law the Butchery Innovation and Revitalization Fund. The act appropriated $750,000 for the Iowa Economic Development Authority to provide financial assistance in the form of grants to businesses for projects relating to small-scale meat processing, licensed custom lockers, and mobile slaughter units. 
In late January, the IEDA awarded grants to 15 small producers, totaling $725,250. The On Leadership column, Why Mental Health is a Business Imperative, by Susanna DeBaca, President and CEO, Business Publications Corporation. For much of my business career, the words mental health were not part of the workplace lexicon. Far from it. At most of the places I worked, if one was struggling with a personal problem of any kind, the accepted practice was to keep it to yourself. As far as mental health was concerned, let's put it this way. The resources were low and the stigma was high. But we are living in a different world. Even before the pandemic, leaders and board directors were confronting a business landscape where the stakes around mental health had changed. Now the pandemic has escalated overall health challenges, heightened awareness of how workplace factors can contribute to poor mental health, and elevated the intersections of health with diversity, equity, and inclusivity. Mental health and employee well-being are now seen as true business imperatives. It's about time. Mental health challenges are now the norm among employees across all organizational levels, says a recent Harvard, Harvard Business Review article titled, It's a New Era for Mental Health at Work. HBR cited Mindshare Partners' 2021 Mental Health at Work report, in which 76% of respondents reported at least one symptom of mental health condition in the past year, up from 59% in 2019. I had to reread that statistic. 76% means nearly every single one of us, from the top down, has been affected by some mental health challenge. Why does mental health matter to your business? For company leaders or directors guiding organizations, employee mental health matters because of one simple fact. Your workforce is your greatest asset. Employees who are expressing experiencing stress or burnout or feeling alienated by organizational culture or struggling with behavioral issues cannot be fully productive and engaged. If your team is not healthy and functioning, chances are your business isn't either or is at risk. But why are your employees' personal issues your company's problem? Some of your employees' mental health or behavioral issues may stem directly from issues in the workplace, but other problems may appear personal in nature, not related to work, prompting many employers to ask why this is a business issue. The answer is easy. At the end of the day, any issue affecting your employees ultimately affects their performance and therefore your business. As the HBR article points out, quote, employees don't experience mental health challenges in isolation. Employers play a role too, both good and bad, end quote. Employers are recognizing that individuals cannot fully compartmentalize their lives. Our professional and personal lives are intersecting more and more, 
And with the rise in remote or hybrid work, the lines between our worlds have blurred. Employees' work has invaded their homes, and employees' personal behavior or mental health challenges at home come to work with them as well. What can leaders and boards do? A recent Forbes article called Minding Employees' Mental Health advises, quote, Employers must move from seeing mental health as an individual challenge to a collective priority, end quote. Antiquated practices of keeping one's personal or health issues quiet no longer serve employees or employers. It is not enough to ask employees to mind their own health. It is now all our jobs to help keep our workforce as healthy as possible. Here are some ways leaders can support mental health in the workplace. Address employee wellness in a formal plan. Employee wellness and mental health should be included in a company's strategic plan and its environmental, social, and governance plan. Leaders and directors should develop clear metrics to hold management accountable for the plan. Offer robust benefits and develop wellness policies. In addition to standard health benefits, make employee assistance programs and screenings available and examine your policies or norms to prevent discrimination, bullying, or stigma. Normalize the conversation and reduce stigma. Talking about mental health as part of all your ongoing communications helps people realize they are not alone and provides hope. Regularly share and remind employees of both internal and external resources. Create a sustainable work environment. A wellness plan can't just be words on a page. Empathetic leaders must consider what their workers need as whole human beings whose jobs inform much of the rest of their lives and create supportive, flexible, and sustainable jobs and culture. This may mean rethinking or redesigning jobs, processes, or procedures, and training. And lead by example. Employees are watching their leaders, taking behavioral cues from you. Taking care of yourself, modeling responsible behavior at company functions and in your daily life, taking time off, getting the help you need, and talking about your own physical, mental, or spiritual health tells your team you are sincere and serious about well-being, yours and theirs. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, March 4th, 2022 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. In this week's Closer Look column, meet a leader you should know. Tony Montgomery, Executive Director, Home, Inc. by Kathy A. Bolton. Over the course of his professional career, Tony Montgomery has had multiple interactions with Home, Inc., Des Moines' oldest privately operated nonprofit housing organization. When Montgomery worked for the City of Des Moines' planning department in the mid-1990s, he connected with Home, Inc. leaders on affordable housing-related issues. 
Later, when he worked in the private sector, he was on Home Inc.'s board of directors. In July, he became the group's executive director. During the pandemic, when I saw how fragile and how vulnerable households were to housing, I knew that I wanted my next career move to be at a local level where I could have the opportunity to make an impact right here in Des Moines, Montgomery said. When Montgomery learned that Pam Carmichael, the group's longtime executive director, was retiring, quote, it was like the universe was talking to me, he said. Home Inc., formerly known as Home Opportunities Made Easy, Inc., began in 1967 as a way to create housing opportunities for people in the Des Moines area. During its 55-year history, the group has acquired, rehabilitated, or built 400 houses and helped 305 families become homeowners. It also has helped more than 175,000 households through counseling and programs that assist landlords and tenants, first-time and other home buyers, and those on the verge of becoming homeless. I learned early in my career that when people have a house, they're able to get jobs and keep jobs, Montgomery said. When people are in a stable home, not just an owner-occupied but also a rental, their kids are able to go to school, stay in school, and be successful. Realizing how having a stable place to live impacted people really became a core part of me and my career. We recently caught up with Montgomery. In a nutshell, what is Home Inc.? It's a full-service housing agency. Not only do we develop affordable housing, but we also offer housing counseling services. We work with individuals who are interested in buying a house, but then we work with them over time to get them ready to buy a house, whether it be credit repair, wealth building, you're getting them ready so that they're actually able to buy a house. We also provide education so that they actually know the process. A unique piece of what we do is working with tenants, helping them work through issues with their landlords. And we work with landlords. Often we're able to mediate solutions so that people can stay in their homes. What are your top goals for Home Inc? What I say to people is that it's evolutionary, not revolutionary. What Home Inc does is really fantastic. The goals that are really evolving for me are making sure we are understanding the people and what they are needing so that the services we're offering and the products that we're offering are meeting their needs. That changes all of the time as families change. The pandemic has changed things as well. We are thinking about how we can evolve and be creative through different housing types, like our new construction house with the accessory dwelling unit different housing and construction techniques. And then secondary, how do we touch more people through home buyer education and counseling? There's also some real-time current things we've got to figure out. Rising construction costs, rising home prices, the lack of inventory. All of this drives the urgency to think more creatively. Talk more about how you are thinking of expanding what Home Inc. does. 
It's going to be strategic partnerships. It's partnering with different groups, local financial institutions, on getting to more of their customers so that we can provide them with home buyer education. Specifically, we want to focus on home buyer education for black households. On our consumer development side, it's creating partnerships with groups so that together we can do more. For example, we're beginning a partnership with Invest DSM on some of the lots they are acquiring so that we can provide affordable housing in some of the neighborhoods where they are focusing on revitalization. Describe Home Inc.'s typical home buyer. It's typically a family with kids. They are working in the essential services types of roles, service workers, daycare providers, manufacturing related work. These are households where both adults are working. They don't know the process of how to buy a house and they often lack the tools to actually be able to buy that house. When you talk about needing education, what does that mean? First, it's understanding credit and how to access credit. These are folks who may not have a history of banking and understanding how that impacts them. Or they have a non-traditional type of credit that doesn't feed into credit reports. The second is understand what they're going to need for a down payment and then helping them understand how to get there. The other component is navigating the process, helping them stay away from bad products, helping them understand how to apply for a loan, going through the closing process. The other piece is understanding how to be a homeowner, making sure payments are being made, and how to be a good neighbor. How are rising building costs and higher interest rates affecting Home Inc.? On the construction side, the cost of building a house is up 25% for materials and labor from a year ago. The people we're working with aren't making 25% more. We have a couple hurdles there. One is we've got to find new ways to pay to build the housing, and then additional ways to make it so that it's affordable for the home buyer. There's a couple things going on. First, there's the development gap, and that's the gap between what the house costs to build and what it appraises for. And then there's the gap between what households can afford for a mortgage and the actual purchase price of a house. We're filling in in both places, more than we've had to in the past. As costs go up, we've got to find new and different ways to be able to contain costs, but we've also got to find different funding sources. Before the pandemic, how many houses a year did Home Inc. build? Between five and 10 a year. Is that how many you want to continue to build a year? Yes, there's a level of quality we want to maintain. If you're focusing too much on the scale, then you're losing the quality. Are the houses you build built on infill lots? Yes, and mostly in Des Moines. We have done some houses in West Des Moines in the past. That's one of the things we want to look at. How do we start to work in more cities? What do you do in your free time? My wife and I have three daughters, a senior, a freshman, and a sixth grader. They keep us busy with all of their activities. 
We also do a lot of community activities, including volunteering. Tony Montgomery, at a glance, lives in Urbandale. Family, wife, Bridget Carberry Montgomery, and three children, Stella, 17, Violet, 15, and Scarlet, 12. Education. Received bachelor's degree in community and regional planning in 1996 from Iowa State University and Master of Business Administration from Drake University in 2007. Work background. November 1995 to May 2002, worked as neighborhood planner, project manager, and redevelopment manager for the city of Des Moines. May 2002 to February 2005, Vice President, Property Management for Darwin T. Linner Company. February 2005 to December 2014, Escrow Operations Manager, Customer Service Manager, and Default service, Servicing Operations Manager at Wells Fargo & Company. December 2014 to mid-2021, Affordable Housing Manager and Community Investment Director, Federal Home Lane Home Loan Bank of Des Moines. July 2021 to President, present Executive Director, Home Inc. Other activities. Vice Chair of the Board of Directors of the American Red Cross Central Iowa Chapter. Advisory Committee Member for Local Initiatives Support Corp. Email Montgomery.tony at Home Inc dsm.org from the one voice monthly newsletter from the Des Moines partnership the chairs column from Rowena Crosby 2022 chair of the greater Des Moines partnership an investment in the region in January, I had the opportunity to speak as the Greater Des Moines Partnership's 2022 board chair at the organization's annual dinner. As a small business owner, I took great pride in the fact that I have the opportunity to chair an organization filled with some of the most influential leaders in the Greater Des Moines DSM region. It was a reminder that whether you are a small business, a multinational corporation, or somewhere in between, this is your partnership. The partnership's next five-year investor campaign, Moving Forward Together 2027, is now underway. The name of the campaign seemed fitting. Collectively, we will continue to push forward on major projects and initiatives with one voice and as one region because we are better and stronger together. Being an investor in the partnership is an opportunity to raise your hand to take on the biggest projects and initiatives in our com community. It is an opportunity to tap into partnership resources, such as timely events and webinars, opportunities to network with regional leaders, public relations and marketing assistance, and advocate to our state and federal elected officials. The most recent five-year campaign helped the partnership and region move the needle on a number of projects and initiatives. You can see the results of the most recent campaign in a video on the partnership's website at dsmpartnership.com forward slash call to action. 
The next campaign will focus on ensuring DSM's continued momentum, growth, and success. Our vision for economic growth and vitality during the next five years is rooted in the following strategies. Positioning DSM for the future, economic development, talent, inclusion, placemaking, and storytelling. We are off to a strong start as several organizations have already raised their hands to invest. You can see a video featuring some of those organizations at dsmpartnership.com forward slash investors. If you are a current partnership investor, we encourage you to consider moving up an investment level. Our investor campaign cabinet made up of more than 60 volunteers will be reaching out. If you are not yet an investor, we encourage you to consider it. You can learn more about the benefits of becoming an investor and how to inquire about becoming an investor on the partnership's website at dsmpartnership.com forward slash investors or by reaching out to me directly at rcrosbie at tero.com. It will be my pleasure to visit with you personally. Our region is successful in large part because of our ability to work together as one region and invest in DSM. According to economist James Chung, the data shows we invested in our region during the recession of 2008 and 2009, which resulted in outsized growth in the 2010s. We must continue to make the commitment to invest in our community. Whether you are a large, medium-sized, or small organization, we need you. In a small business success blog from Rush Nygut, shareholder at Brick Gentry PC, Small Business Successes, 11 Key Takeaways from Mia Hamm on How to Become Your Best. I'm fascinated by the mindset of high performers, regardless of their profession. It's fun to listen to these high performers share their background and insight on what has made them so successful. And the great thing is, this high-performing mindset is available to everyone. We all have it in us. It is no surprise soccer star Mia Hamm's keynote at the recent Greater Des Moines Partnership Annual Dinner was a treasure trove on how to optimize your mindset for high performance. How did she accomplish all of this? Her focused mindset undoubtedly set her apart and helped her overcome any doubts she had about herself. Achieving in sports and in life. Some of Ham's key takeaways on how to achieve at an elite level. You must learn how to work. It is important to get comfortable with being uncomfortable as you push yourself beyond limits. You must make the decision to flip on the light switch every day. Be flexible and adapt in difficult situations. It can be lonely at the top. Lots of people will want you to conform. You may be viewed as different or strange. You must be okay with this and comfortable in your own skin. Find a way to improve in some aspects of the game or profession every day. Do the little things. 
If you want to be a great leader, you must carry the water. We all want to know we are valued. Treat people the right way. You do not need to be the best in every aspect. Play to your strengths and understand your weaknesses. Be invincible even when you fail. It is okay to fail. You are on the team for a reason. Be confident. Give back to your profession. Now Dave Elbert's column, The Elbert Files. Chasing Rainbows. They're chasing rainbows, my friend KC said when our paths crossed near Terrace Hill on an unseasonably cold day. I was rubbing my hands together to stay warm, and the idea of chasing rainbows sounded inviting. Who's chasing rainbows, and where can I find them? I asked with a smile. Republicans at the State House, KC answered. They think that by eliminating taxes on retirement income, Iowa will become a haven for old folks, like Florida and Texas. Peter Fisher says that won't work, I replied. Fisher is research director for Common Good Iowa, a nonpartisan public policy group based in Iowa City, and he recently wrote that studies consistently show, quote, people do not move from state to state over tax policy, end quote. He quoted a study by the University of New Hampshire, which, which said, quote, state tax policies toward the elderly have changed substantially, while elderly migration patterns have not, end quote. Everyone knows that older people move to be closer to relatives or for warmer weather, not because of tax policy, Casey said. Everyone except Republicans at the State House, I replied. Fisher's analysis showed that although 1% of older Iowans leave the state each year, their loss is mostly offset by seniors moving to Iowa to be closer to family and such. Eliminating income taxes on pension income will cost Iowa about $400 million a year, he estimated. Meanwhile, the net loss of elderly Iowans is only about 400 people a year. That amounts to $1 million for every net out migrant, most of whom are likely moving for the weather, Fisher wrote. Besides, he added, Iowa law already exempts Social Security from income taxes. As a result, the majority of seniors already pay little or no income tax. The new pension exemption is only a small part of the multi-year tax package Republicans passed this year to move Iowa to a flat tax of 3.9%, which will cut state revenues by about 20% in 2026. Politicians never think about how such huge cuts will affect quality of life, Casey said. The really sad thing, Casey continued, is state government is sitting on a huge pile of cash because of federal COVID payments. But they're not using that money to fix any of Iowa's many problems. The only thing they will spend it on is rural broadband, which sounds good. But trust me, he said, they'll mess it up just like they did 30 years ago when they built the statewide fiber optic network that was hugely expensive and vastly underused. 
Did you see what they want to do to teachers, Casey continued? They're only going to spend 2.5% more on education at a time when inflation is three times that. Talk about a recipe for disaster. And even less of the money they spend will go where it's needed in public schools because they're going to set up a new fund to help private schools. If you want to see what the future of public education in Iowa looks like, just look at what's happening to the nursing profession, he said. Iowa nurses have been underpaid for decades. Then COVID hit and drove up demand to the point where nursing homes and some hospitals couldn't get enough help. They wound up paying exorbitant wages to traveling nurses to cover regular shifts because of the burnout rate. Now all nurses are seeing how much more they can make if they go into the traveling nurses portal. It's kind of like what happened in college athletics to allow players to jump to a new team between seasons. Anyway, the nurses are doing it now, and teachers soon will be too. In fact, some already are, judging by the news stories about schools not being able to find enough substitutes. It's only going to get worse. It won't be gold that Iowa lawmakers find at the end of their tax-cutting rainbow. It's a giant lump of coal, K.C. said as he turned and walked away. From the Greater Des Moines Partnership's One Voice newsletter, Bragging Rights, hashtag DSM Strong. Mercy One's Population Health Services Organization President Derek Novak was named as one of the population health leaders to know by Becker's Hospital Review. The City of Des Moines, Des Moines Waterworks, and the Iowa Department of Natural Resources launched a new water awareness sign campaign to help Iowans better understand why water sources are critical needs in Iowa. Wendy J.B. Young was named as the new CFO of FNG. The Johnston Planning and Zoning Commission approved the site plan for the upcoming Ignite Johnston Sports and Fitness Site. The Polk County Board of Supervisors approved a $10 million resolution for Des Moines International Airport Terminal Project. Iowa Confluence Icon Water Trails Fleur Drive site was included in the first round of Governor Kim Reynolds' Iowa's Water Infrastructure Fund grants. Wells Fargo's Laura Howe was promoted to the Midwest Central Region's Regional Banking Director position. Tyler Jessen, AIA from RDG Planning and Design, was named an Emerging Professional by AIA Iowa. The competition features the work of architecture students, architecture interns, and architects licensed for 10 years or less. The West Des Moines Chamber of Commerce was awarded the Martin Luther King Jr. Community Organizational Leadership Award. This nomination was selected by the City of West Des Moines, West Des Moines Human Rights Commission, Greater Des Moines Partnership, West Des Moines Historical Society, Des Moines University, and the West Des Moines Community School District. And that does it for today's reading of the Business Record for Friday, March 4, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
Exploring Science and the Sea. We all know that El Nino can have a big impact on the weather here in the United States, but El Nino's effects aren't limited to the U.S. They can alter the climate across the entire planet. In fact, an especially powerful El Nino may have triggered the deadliest famine in history. The famine lasted from 1876 to 78. It probably killed more than 50 million people. Most of the victims were in China, but there were many in Brazil, India, and parts of Africa as well. Climate scientists have suspected that a strong El Nino played a big role in the famine, and a recent study adds to that likelihood. Scientists combed through records of tree rings from around the world. The rings record conditions for each year. Wet conditions produce thick rings, while dry conditions produce thin rings. The scientists found that the rings from 1876 to 1878 were especially puny, so conditions were especially dry. Records of ocean temperatures showed that those years coincided with an especially strong El Nino, when the warm surface waters in the Pacific Ocean can influence global climate. It lasted longer than any other El Nino ever recorded. The researchers also found that the water was unusually warm in parts of the Atlantic and Indian oceans as well. That could have been a result of El Nino, or it could have been just a coincidence. Either way, that helped create severe droughts across much of the world, and that helped cause the famine, a human catastrophe that began in the world's oceans. Science in the Sea, a production of the University of Texas Marine Science Institute, is on the web at scienceinthesea.org. I'm Holly Brawley.